Chapter Fourteen of the Recording Angel by Edwin Arnold Brenholtz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kate Fallis. Chapter Fourteen. There are several ways to kill a cat. Old saying. Being possessed of only the usual powers of created beings, we cannot be in more than one place at a time, and so we must return to Robert Endy, who stood perfectly still for several moments after proclaiming his innocence and curse on the guilty, saying to himself, "'Not dead! Not dead! He cannot be dead!' And then he pulled himself together, and sighed deeply, and said in his old sharp business-like manner, "'Who are you, sir? And when did this happen, and where did you get this letter?' The detective smiled as he curtly said, "'My name is Arthur. Two members of the city police force are outside the door. You probably don't need any answer to the second question. I received the letter from the hands of your father on Friday afternoon. We must be going now. You will have plenty of time in jail to read it before the examining trial takes place.' My instructions from your father were to follow you south. As you know, I did not have to go far in that direction. I left the others outside in order to say to you that I am sorry for you, for your father's sake, if you are innocent or guilty, for I have been learned to esteem him highly in the short time I have been in his company. And if he dies, and you are guilty, I will do my best to have you electrocuted for it. But I will say this much to you on the supposition that being your father's son you are therefore innocent things look black for you therefore don't talk thank you sir said robert who when his mind ran back over the last few days saw that there were many things which would naturally appear against him thank you sir my word to you or to any man who is not working for me is that i am innocent that is my only word Good replied Arthur, but he smiled as he said further, "'They all say that same, Mr. Endy.' Since he was a rich man's son, and wealthy himself, and also because there were three to one, Robert did not have to wear bracelets, although one of the officers insisted on the formality being observed, saying that what was good enough for a poor man was, in his opinion, good enough for a rich one. But his companion said, "'You'd better go slow.' The strikers are on top now, but the strike is not ended, and we have not heard from Craggie yet, you know. His assistant sullenly said, Maybe you're right, but I wish that we never hear from him. A man daren't say his soul's his own the way he runs things these days. Oh, I'm not much struck on Craggie, was the reply. Not me, but that's because he hasn't found out yet that I'm here. He takes mighty good care of the men who do work to suit him. Anyway, it's craggy, or maybe a worse one, and I'm not helping to topple one master over until I've examined the build of his successor, see? Maybe you're right, was the reply, and then they were silent until the vehicle in which they were driving stopped at the same door that not so long before had opened for Arndt, and it was the genial voice of the sheriff which greeted them and said, Good morning, gentlemen. I'm truly sorry to see you here, Mr. Endy. As soon as he was in the building, and while waiting for the necessary formalities, Robert read the letter Arthur had delivered to him, and there were tears in his eyes as he handed it to the detective, saying, "'Read it, please!' And that word, please, marked the beginning of the transformation of the man. Many utter the word, but not in the way he said it. Then Arthur read, 
my dear son i was upon opening your letter greatly relieved to find that your affection for your father had not been lost in the whirl of events of the last few days the actions I have taken have all been carried out through a sense of duty to humanity, although I am obliged to confess that some of them were begun under the sting of wounded personal feelings. The publicity which has attended the performance has not been a result of any wish of mine, and the notoriety can hardly be more unpleasant to you than it is to me. It is contrary to the habit of my whole life, but it is a part of the price that is necessary to be paid by any one who would aid the working class." The value of my name and influence to the cause of equal justice is as great as or greater than the money I can bestow, so I must give up my quiet life, as well as my money. I want you to be immediately assured that I implicitly believe every word you say in regard to your intentions in the suit you brought against Arndt, and I am more relieved than I am able to tell you at your disavowal, since an attempt of the kind that seemed to be indicated by the evidence before me was capable of but one interpretation, and that was that you had lost all respect and love for me. I so interpreted it, and acted accordingly. We owe Mr. Craggie a debt of gratitude, which I will seek an early opportunity to pay, for having caused you to abandon that action against Arndt. It is true he thus prevented us gaining an important advantage in favor of the strikers, but he, at the same time, saved my feelings as a father. You are entirely wrong in regard to Charles Arndt. I myself sought him out, and asked his aid in the distribution of the money I had dedicated to the working men's cause. He even advised me to await your return to the house in order to give you another chance, even though he would have lost the advantage to the cause which your hasty action had given us, and, also, he refused to prosecute you for false imprisonment. But, my son, I know you well enough to be fully aware that no evidence to the contrary will make you see Arndt in the proper light, for, according to your own confession, you do not believe that any disinterested motive can actuate a man in this life." There was never a greater mistake of judgment than that. The history of the world is full of such cases, and it can never be read aright, nor can conduct be properly ordered by a mind distorted by such a bias. Unselfishness is the key which will inevitably unlock all the problems that are now closed doors between man and man, and it will eventually solve all the vexed questions of society. Hoping for the day, when you will realize this, I am now, as always, your loving father. Robert Endy. As Arthur quietly stood reading the letter, Robert sat with his head buried in his hands, and when he had finished, the detective said, I would keep that if I were you. It will help you a whole lot with the jury if your lawyer can get it before them. But I'm very sorry now that I did not deliver it to you last night. Robert gazed at him in astonishment. I saw you look from the window of your front room precisely at 9.32, Mr. Endy, and I immediately entered the building to hand you the letter. Robert started to ask what made you change your mind, but he never said more than what. I was on the way to your door when I saw you open it and admit the princess, and then I concluded to wait until morning, continued Arthur significantly. Robert did not reply, and sat thinking deeply until Mr. Bertram, the lawyer he had sent for, arrived. They immediately had a conference, and as a result Arthur was called to their assistance, and in reply to a question of Mr. Bertram's he said, 
I have severed my connection with the agency. This I did willingly at the request of Mr. Endy's father, as I am pretty tired of being hauled off of one case after another simply because Mr. Craggie doesn't want it investigated. I am now employed by Mr. Endy, and can serve no one but him for the present. Then Robert said to him, You can serve my father better no other way than by hunting up his assailant, and when you find that man you will clear me. I have nothing to conceal from you, so you had better remain while I state my case to Mr. Bertram, as it will save you a lot of time and trouble to know exactly every move I made, and the reasons for them since I left home. Certainly, if you are willing, nothing could suit me better, said Arthur, and after hearing him to the end, without interruption, he continued, it may be possible that she will be willing for a good round sum to testify to the truth, but I doubt it. Moreover, the testimony of women of her class goes for very little with even the average jury, the lawyer interrupted. And worst of all, you positively cannot afford to use her testimony, even if she is willing to give it. We must think of your future. Of course, if things come to the worst, we must prove our alibi with whatever testimony we can get. But for the present, I see nothing for it but to waive an examining trial and let Arthur put all his skill into finding the guilty man. The janitor will, of course, swear that you were here all last night, but he might also swear to more than that. Don't you depend on the janitor. I think he positively hates me. He will tell nothing to my advantage. Arthur and Bertram exchanged significant glances, for they both knew about Robert's way of treating workers, and both doubted whether he had a single friend or well-wisher among them. Robert's thoughts passed on to the woman, and he exclaimed, "'May perdition seize the princess! If it had not been for her, I would not even be subject to suspicion.' God knows I have been sick to death of her for over a year, but when I remembered the appointment I had made for last night, I also recollected that I could not afford to break with her and complicate matters at this time. I would not have my old father know that I had even spoken to her, or such as her, for the world. I tell you, Mr. Arthur, you must just find that guilty man, for I'll die before I'll have her name connected with mine, Arthur said. You may depend on it. I will do my very best. But I get on the case rather late, and you may have to use both the janitor's and the princess's testimony. I will go to them directly, for although I don't like to remind you of it, your father may not survive, and... But he left the room without finishing his sentence. And thus it happened that when Mr. Craggie received the reply to the telegram, which he sent after his talk with Mr. Johnson, asking to have Arthur detailed to work for him, the answer he received caused him to use violent language, which was a very unusual indulgence for him. The answer read, Arthur has left us, present whereabouts unknown. This was received just as he entered his private car after his dinner at a station, seventy-five miles beyond Steelton. Mr. Craggy had distinctly stated to the lawyer that he intended to go on further up the road, and so Mr. Johnson had returned to Clyde on the regular train. But when Mr. Craggy sat down on the opposite side of the table, at which he left the secretary so busily writing, he said— "'Good evening, good evening, Mr. Chambers. I trust that you enjoyed your little rest. Beautiful day, is it not? Anything new?' "'Yes, sir, several things. Well, just tell the conductor to run us back to Steelton. Any time he can get a clear track. There's no hurry, and I don't want to get Voss into any more trouble than is necessary. 
I hear that there is a good deal of muttering about our going over the roads whenever we please and as fast as we please. Eh, Mr. Chambers? A good deal of grumbling, sir, was the reply as the young man went out to give the necessary orders, but he thought as he hunted up the conductor. I wonder what makes Craggie in such a good humor today, and the strike going dead against him, too. After the return of Chambers, the President dictated a few articles for the daily newspapers, which were very carefully worded, but were intended to convey the impression that after all Mr. Endy's son had not been entirely wrong, and that a young man who found himself on the point of losing a fortune, which he considered almost his own, was justified in feeling very sore about the matter, and was almost, perhaps, warranted in doing something to the man he considered responsible for the loss he was about to sustain, and that, maybe, he was even justified in thinking that his father's mind was unbalanced, slightly, at least, when he made so monstrous a will. As to the method by which the son came into possession of the knowledge of the contents of the will, that, of course, was indefensible for all parties concerned, if it were true, as told. But, the article concluded, but it is never safe to believe all we hear in these cases. We have even heard outsiders remarking on the intellectual decline of Mr. Endy Sr. And the President smiled benignly as he said to Chambers, and the thing the dear people won't believe is the story told by old Endy as to the affair at Johnson's. You ought to dictate our foreign correspondence, sir. The diplomatic corps has needed you for a long time, said Chambers. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Chambers, that's all right. And Mr. Craggie laughed at his own cleverness and the compliment that had been paid him, and then he settled back in his chair in a way that Chambers knew, from long experience, meant lighting a cigar and talking about himself. For the great man had to have some one to unburden himself to, and the talk with Johnson was the only one during his whole life in which he had been perfectly open with one on his own social plane. Chambers had made himself indispensable by never refusing to carry out a single order, by his discreetness, by the perfection of his work, and by paying delicate little compliments at the proper time. And so, the cigar being lighted, Mr. Craggie repeated, that's all right, Mr. Chambers. They appear every once in a while to be getting things into a terrible mess, but it all works our way in the end, if you have noticed. I drop them a bit of advice about once and so often, as you know, and they mostly pay considerable attention to what we suggest, eh? Chambers knew that he was not expected to reply, so he said nothing, but he still had the same appreciative smile on his face that invariably took its place there when he reached under the drawer and touched a little spring, which worked very easily from much use. And he smiled, and smiled even more appreciatively, as he said to himself, Whenever Mr. Craggie says us or our, he means only himself, just like a good many people. There were quite a number of these so-called editorials written, differing in wording, but all intended to break down the growing sympathy of the middle class for the strikers. They were models in their way, and the carefulness displayed in selecting the proper editorial for each leading paper was also a good lesson to anyone that needed it. But that one was certainly not Mr. Chambers, to whom the President knew he could safely entrust the matter. So he sat back, quietly smoking in his revolving chair, and he even thought, as he watched the secretary swiftly reducing the pile of stenographic notes to clear and absolutely accurate typewritten sheets, 
chambers is a valuable man in fact an invaluable man i will find something suited to his ability some day but i can't spare him now and it won't do to raise his salary at present he might get the big head really his unconsciousness of his value makes him quite a companionable fellow it would never do to spoil that the result of this reflection was that he soon interrupted chambers by the remark well i'm not altogether sorry that we had those reverses at first those easy victories will make the labor leaders careless and besides i enjoy a good fight anyhow the victories over organized labor in the past have been hardly worth while injunctions intimidated judges purchased leaders and men persuaded to turn traitor to their fellows all used to answer very well but they came cheap and the men paid for them every time for we always added the sum total to necessary running expense account and took it out of the men's wages sooner or later and when our property has been destroyed the strikers suffered the odium and lost the sympathy of the property owners everywhere we lately have succeeded in collecting our losses of this kind out of the whole people in the shape of taxes for we made the states pay us on the plea that it was the duty of the state to protect our property though if an incendiary burns up a private individual's house or store or factory the owner can get nothing out of the state what a pack of fools a people are that they do not insist that the application of that law must extend to the losses of all the people but it would be a sorry day for the rich if they did and i am not apt to put them up to it the people are really utterly unfit to govern themselves and then there was silence and the secretary resumed his work but after a little while the president laughed heartily and said really this is the best joke of all and the thought was so funny that he had to confide it to chambers who again touched the little spring this time with his knee there was one fool editor who actually twitted the corporations because as he said under this plan the people had found a means of making the rich help pay for their own losses and when i saw that article i laughed until i would have presented the fellow with ten dollars for the enjoyment he had given me but the fool would not accept it yes in reply to a look from chambers that was the fellow who sent back the ten dollars with a note saying that he could not receive money for which he had rendered no equivalent that told all about him there are not many of his kind he ought to have lived in some other world than this i watched to see what would happen and i did not interfere at all for that would have spoiled the value of the experiment and that man went to the wall inside a year and he is this day setting type for a patent outside paper that i control absolutely the world doesn't want that kind of man so far as i can see but i'm hindering you though there is no particular hurry about those editorials we don't want them to appear too near together you will just pay out of your fund whatever is necessary to ensure their insertion as editorials in fact i think that we may have to increase that fund shortly but i would send out only the ones to the two nearest papers today and you might telegraph them the rest we will hold until we see the effect of these when the president's car was safe on its siding at steelton he told chambers that he would not need him during the night as he proposed to make up for the rest and sleep he had lost by turning in as soon as he had eaten the supper which the secretary was instructed to have sent to the car from the railroad station restaurant and by the way what has become of that cook it doesn't always suit to stop for meals 
oh said chambers i forgot to tell you that he telegraphed to know whether he should follow us with those provisions and i told him to wait where he is until he got orders from you as i didn't know where to tell him to meet us very good tell him to come on to clyde at once we are apt to be around here for several days chambers then said that he would go up to the hotel for the night where he could be found if needed but that he would have to finish the two articles as he had deferred them until last because they had less distance to travel mr craggie thereupon said he would order his own meal and get some fresh air and a little exercise no sooner had he disappeared within the building than Chambers carefully removed the little machine, of which he seemed to think so much, and placed it by the side of the box, which was lying in the handbag. He then speedily finished his work, and with the telegrams in one hand and the handbag in the other he left the car, after first seeing that the windows were all tightly closed, and as he shut the door behind him he carefully locked it then after leaving the telegrams at the office with the remark send them at once he went to the hotel where a good part of the night was spent in listening to the assertive voice of the president as he conspired with mr johnson when the machine stopped talking and then after a pause went on again chambers said emphatically damn after a few words more the talking came to an abrupt end but this time there was a very faint click which told the listener that the cylinder was full botheration as craggie says he exclaimed then after a moment i guess there's enough of it after all i am powerful glad that there is not another machine like you in the world and he patted the marvellous little instrument which was small enough to be a child's toy and as he carefully wiped and oiled every part of it he remarked you certainly did cost me a pretty penny lots of hard thinking and plenty of trouble but you are worth every bit of it then he set the machine going again at the beginning and went busily to work putting down in shorthand the whole conversation that was on that cylinder afterwards he put on some other cylinders and took notes from them it was in the small hours of the morning when he finished and the machine was kept steadily going until he blew out the light and went to bed he had done a hard night's work and so he slept soundly and it was rather late when he stepped on the station platform for he intended to eat his breakfast where he could see the car he was in such a rush that he did not see the angry looks which were cast upon him as he hurried past the men who also were hastening to the station as he stepped on the platform he was confronted by Arndt, whom he knew well, who said, without a word of greeting, "'Chambers, order that conductor of yours to pull out of here at once. The men will not be held in much longer. They will kill Craggie if they see him today.' And as Chambers hesitated, he added emphatically, "'Move, man! Robert Endy was almost murdered last night!' At that word, Chambers sprang to the car, and disregarding Arndt's warning to not let the men know what he was about, cried aloud to the conductor who was standing at the switch with his hand on the lever, To Clyde! At full speed! And this time they went, without asking for the right-of-way, but since it was a double-track road, they had only to keep a lookout ahead. The conductor did not have time to lock the switch, and barely succeeded in catching the rail of the car steps and swinging himself aboard, followed by the execrations of the men and several harder things. Chambers, who had stood where he could give a helping hand to the conductor, then stepped into the car and found Mr. Craggie at the washbowl, holding on to its side as the car swung with a lurch onto the main track. 
he motioned to the conductor who was close behind him to pass on to his place in the cab opposite to the engineer the conductor glanced at mr craggie's wrath-swollen face and made all possible haste what does this mean sir cried the president i gave no orders to start there was a new and thrilling tone in the voice of mr chambers as he quietly said but i did sir mr endy was murdered in his bed last night end of chapter fourteen